The rest of you, I invite to open the Bible, if you have it with you, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you don't have it with you, the text, as always, is in your order of worship. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there are, were a couple on the back table. may not be there anymore, uh, but let me know. I'd love to get one in your hands, okay? We're in Ecclesiastes 4. That's in the Old Testament, if that's unfamiliar to you. Uh, about halfway through is Psalms. You keep heading to the right, you get Proverbs, and then you get Ecclesiastes. For the last ten weeks here in this church, we've been walking through Ecclesiastes, having attention drawn to something that all of us do, uh, trying to find something apart from God to help support our hopes, to support our lives. We all do it. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. We've been looking through Ecclesiastes because that's what this whole book is about. Our teacher is trying to find something to hold his hopes under the sun, the phrase that he uses, under the sun, meaning something that he can see, something that he can touch. He's, he's trying to look at the world in a, in a phenomenological way, a, a materialist way, and find something, some experience that will be able to hold his hopes. But over and over again, what we have been shown is that these options are, are meaningless. That doesn't mean they're bad. They're good, as a matter of fact. Most of them are all good things. They just can't be ultimate things. They can't be the ultimate things we want them to be. And so this morning we come to the question of hope in total. If we insist on looking at the world apart from the all-powerful and good God, what right do we have to hope? What do we base that on? That is the question that we address this morning. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes 4, I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. That's our habit here. Uh, We'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. This is God's word, friends, in our the myriad of experiences with which we've come into this room. Let's attend to it. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of, the, of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead... More fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. For the fool folds his hands, eats his own flesh. And better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Believe it or not, this is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we were made for you. 1,700 years ago, one of your people declared that you have made us for yourself, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so this morning, through through your gospel, Lord, would you help us to find rest in you, for our hearts are restless. Constantly looking for one thing or another to bring us hope, to bring us rest, to flourish us. But you are the one we were designed for, and so, Lord, we ask that now during this time that you would preach your gospel to us, that we can be reconciled to you. And, and Lord, would you, would you do that for the sake of our flourishing? And would you would let your gospel come to the fore, Jesus and his cross, and let, um, let the speaker fall into the background, Lord, for the sake of your name, we ask it. Amen. Have a seat.
Where is the world heading? It's a loaded question, right? The question of where the world is heading at the same time provides the basis for what we name hope, right? What, what do we call something? What, what, on what do we base hope? Well, it's an answer to that question, where is the world heading? And for the longest time, Western culture has been dominated by this assumption that we call progress. The assumption that human history was moving along an upward trajectory through science and evolution to a kind of complete mastery over the world. But we've been disillusioned of that. It took a couple of world wars, but it did happen. Uh, it took those wars fought by those considered the most enlightened and progressive, but we have been disillusioned. We have fundamentally questioned that. But in the ancient world, the vast majority of cultures wouldn't have even understood the question, where is the world heading? Because everything was cyclical to them, and so the best they could hope for was just to keep their head down and, and hope that things all panned out in the end. Try not to draw too much attention to yourself. You'll get squished, whether it's by the gods or the emperor. This question, though, where is the world heading, is fundamental to Christianity. It's fundamental to the Christian story, and it offers us something that all of our searching under the sun can't. It offers us hope. There's an outline in your bulletin this morning, if that's helpful to you. We're actually only going to look at two points this morning. We're going to look at the fact that hope sinks and that it rises. Okay? Really easy. Hope sinks, hope rises. Let's start with the fact that it sinks. Let's start with oppression and comfort, shall we? Look down at verse 1. Our teacher says this, Again, I saw the oppressions that are done unto the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, and there was no one to comfort them. All right? Stop there. It's pretty cheery, right? This is, this is, this is happy-go-lucky guy. Uh, let's look at a couple of words, shall we? Let's start with oppressed. In this, in this one verse, uh, that word is mentioned three different ways. He talks about the oppressed, he talks about oppressions, and he talks about oppressors, right? Um, now, like we often do, we hear these words and we bring into them our own cultural definitions. For example, today in our culture, um, oppression can mean anything from something valid like racism to something like, um, you're not letting me do whatever desire enters into my heart at a given moment, therefore you are oppressing me. Like, we, we have this span of definitions for these kind of words, and so we need to get into what our author means. The Old Testament talks about oppressors a lot, believe it or not. Oppressors in the Old Testament are those who use their power and wealth to mistreat those who don't have it. And because of that, don't have the ability to provide adequate defense of their rights. In other words, they are people who use their wealth and power to rig the system, to flourish themselves. And so oppression, according to the Old Testament, is the act of using power and wealth to protect your power, to protect your wealth at the expense of the poor and the powerless. And when I say the poor and the powerless, we need to understand that what that means uh, specifically in most contexts in the Old Testament are uh, folks who are um, socially vulnerable, widows, orphans, immigrants, people who don't have legal recourse or don't have much legal recourse. So, what the teacher is seeing here is powerful people oppressing the weak, and there is no one to comfort them. Now, that word comfort, uh, uh, again, we, we need to understand what exactly that means in the, in the context. That, that word means, it, it, it means bringing consolation. It means easing suffering, right? That, that seems to make sense. Uh, 
Or at least it means giving a fundamental assurance that things will change. In other words, comfort uh, in, in, in the scriptures doesn't mean um, pie in the sky, wishful thinking. It means a surety. Like comfort comes because of a surety. It comes because of a reality that you are certain of is coming or will change, will happen. Something is happening. In other words, our teacher is looking at the weak, he's looking at the poor, and there's no one to comfort them because there isn't any comfort. There's no change. Comfort implies that you actually know that things will change, and he doesn't believe that things will. Have you noticed? Just notice in this passage. Just trust me on this one. Look Look down at our passage. Never once does he say, we should change this. Rise up and fight this. He doesn't. He never does. In all of his meaningless talk, he never says, so let's make things different. He doesn't believe it can be different. There is never, along with his calls for meaninglessness, an attendant call to make a difference because under the sun, he sees that a lasting difference cannot be made. It cannot be made. Now, some of you right now are like skeptical. You're like, Rick, what are you talking about? We can all make a difference. Be the change. You know, like, stay with me just a minute, because I want to speak to those skepticisms. Look down at verses 2 and 3. His basic message in these verses, I'm not going to read them again, is basically this. Dead is good. Better is to not have been born. Okay, again, this is not like life of the party guy. This is like take Eeyore to lunch guy. You know, this is, this is, uh, this is quite frankly, he is harshly honest guy. Okay? To claim that one would be better off never being born than to come into a world full of this kind of oppression is deeply hopeless. Is deeply hopeless. And so some of us right now, you know, we're thinking, like, this can't be right. This guy's just despairing. He's just stuck in despair. He needs some Prozac. You know, like, he needs Zoloft. Like, let's get him on an SSRI and everything will be fine. Like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't reflecting reality, but I would ask you, what? Why do you think that? To some extent, like I asked last week, why why are you so certain that actual change can happen? I mean, is that what your experience tells you? Maybe it does. Or is your experience more like a game of whack-a-mole? Right? You know what whack-a-mole is, right? Some of you do. Some of you are like, whack-a-mole. It's a carnival game, right? A carnival game, you walk up, there's a board, there's a bunch of holes in it. You have this big padded mallet and a little little mole comes up through it and you hit him and he goes boop and boop comes up again the whole the whole point is you just hit these things as hard as you can you can't win they will always keep coming up you knock one down and the other one comes up that's the whole point of the game so you see when he claims that there is no one to comfort he doesn't mean that one oppressor cannot fall he doesn't mean that He'd probably seen that happen in, in, his, in his own lifetime. What he means is that another will probably rise up in his place. The comfort that is to come, uh, the comfort to wipe away these tears, to put an end to the oppression, like that is comfort. He just doesn't see that as very likely. So if you're looking at the world the way our teacher is, Apart from God, or in light, quite frankly, of a powerless God held sway by the same forces of, of, of chance and of process that we are, why would you ever think that comfort will come? On what do you base that? 
Because he looks around the world and he can't find it. Look, even, even uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Who actually, you know, um, philosopher, uh, very important philosopher in the history of Western thought. He actually crafted the most honest and intellectually robust way of looking at the world apart from Christianity. Even he said that the best you could hope for was not to do away with oppression, but to be the oppressor. The best you could hope for was to assert your will to power on another, which was really easy for him to say, because he was a privileged intellectual. Right? You don't go into philosophy if you're like scrounging for food. Nietzsche was doing okay for himself. He had the influence. He was on the list of the teachers. People here? Easy for him to say. Just go be one of the oppressors. Our teacher is looking at things from the perspective of the oppressed. The oppressed who know they can't get out. And so he says, better off to have not even been born. Now, at this point, in the last two weeks, right? The last two weeks we've looked at stuff. This is the point at which our teacher says, so in light of this, the best thing you do is just get on with your work. Get the most you can out of it. Hopefully it'll go well for you. Enjoy it. This is your lot in life, yada, yada, yada. But today, he says something a little different. Look down at verses 4 to 6. He says, all toil and skill and work comes from envy. Now stop there. What? What? He is saying, quite clearly, your hard work is probably driven from a desire to have what your neighbor has. And maybe it's not your neighbor. Maybe it's an older sibling. Maybe it's what your parents didn't have. Maybe it's something else. But it's, the point is, he's saying, it is driven from a desire to have what someone else you look to has and you don't have it. In other words, envy, avarice, greed. And then he keeps on going. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Okay, weird. Um, here's what that means. The, these next two verses here are talking about different ways to view work. Uh, they, are, um, they are Proverbs. The fool folds his hands. In other words, he, he's not doing anything. And because he's not doing anything, he lays around and does nothing and ends up destroying himself. But that isn't the end of it. He also says that two hands full of striving and toil isn't good either. All right, what does this have to do with the first three verses? Okay, here it is. And quite frankly, like, I, love, I love how this particular passage speaks to our culture here in Stanton. Our culture today has two different lo- loci for hope, Right? Two places that we look to for hope. One place is hope in systemic change. Okay, systemic change. If there's going to be hope, it's going to be because we change systems. The other places hope on the locus of personal responsibility. You with me? Systemic change, personal responsibility. Let me be more specific. One hope is in changing systems to eliminate oppression. And the other is in allowing for more opportunity for the oppressed to not be by their own choice. One comes with the label liberal. The other comes with the label conservative. The first three verses speaks to the first of these, and the last three speak to the second. Okay? Now listen. Listen. Before, before you all get steam starts coming out, I'm not here to discuss the relative merits of those systems. You can do that on your own free time. Okay, what we're talking about here is whether these can be hopes, whether they can hold the weight of our hope, and the answer is a resounding no. Which actually does in this room. That's great. Okay, it's a resounding no. There is no such thing as a liberal utopia or a conservative slash libertarian one because none of them get to the core of what the problem is. 
To get at that, though, we have to actually return again to the story of the Bible. Because we have to get to the question of where is the world heading. Because the scripture says the world wasn't created for oppression. It was created for peace, for shalom. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, that concept means relationships all fitting together well. And when I say relationships, I don't just mean interpersonally. I mean your relationship with God, your relationship with creation. That everything fit together. It, it fit together nicely. We were in a dependent relationship with God. We were charged with executing His just and loving rule over creation. But we were fooled into thinking that God being God meant God being an oppressor. We were fooled into thinking that God being God meant God using His own power for His own good at our cost. And so because of that, we needed to get out from under Him to shake off His rule of us and that we could do it simply by turning away from Him. And so we did it. We did it. We bought into the lie. We, we believed that he was only out for his own good and not ours. And we bought into the lie and we turned from him. We betrayed him. And when we did, everything broke. Not only were we now guilty of betraying God, but also the scripture says we were, we were bent in on ourselves. We were made to live for the sake of others and for God, but now we were turned towards looking out for number one. Now listen, we have got to get this. Because if, you, if we don't get this one point, there is no way we can understand the rest of the Christian story. If our problem is just a little moral issue, like we just, you know, behavior's not really good. If, if it's just that, then, then the story changes. But the Bible tells us that our problem is not that we do bad things. The Bible tells us that doing bad things is a result of the problem. That doing bad things is actually a symptom not the issue. When we betrayed God, we became stuck into a way of being that is independent of Him. In Psalm 2, it puts it this way, that the, the rulers of the world gather together and they say, let us throw off His shackles, as if uh, following God is a kind of uh, slavery and He's a slave driver. We came to believe that the fundamental principle of the world is power. That God is using His to keep, his, to keep us down and keep Him in power, Right? And that we could be equal with him if we simply turned from him. And ever since then, we have been living out of that lie. What I mean is this. We still believe that power is the fundamental principle of the world. And we still believe that we have to use it to prop ourselves up. Frankly, that's why we're obsessed with politics in this country. If we can just get power. If we can just get back into power or keep the power we've got, everything will be great and friends, this is why oppression can't be gotten rid of by changing systems. Because ultimately, the system isn't the problem. It's those of us who run it. This is also why hard work and personal responsibility can't solve the problem. Because we simply work tirelessly to get what we don't have, what someone else has. And if they have it and we can't get it, we, we take it. If we were to have real comfort, real hope, it will have to change more than just circumstances. It will have to change us. And that, friends, is why the teacher cries out, meaningless. How do you change us? Under the sun? No hope for such a thing. And so hope sinks. But Christianity approaches us with a hope this morning that rises. So I want to bring this text forward to this side of Jesus' cross in two ways this morning. Okay? First and foremost, I want us to simply see the Christian hope. 
That word comfort, again, there's no one to comfort them. There is no comfort for these folks. That word, that exact same word is used um, in a particular place in the Old Testament that's popular during a certain season that's approaching. Uh, In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah begins talking about a time that was promised in which God was going to dramatically act to change things. God's not oblivious, right? He's not oblivious to what's going on in the world. And he promised to dramatically act. God didn't leave us broken and guilty in the garden. He promised right then and there to fix things. We mess things up, and he promised to fix them. And as the Old Testament progressed, the way in which he would do that became more and more clear. What was needed was something uh, not just to cover over what we did, but to fundamentally fix it. He needed to, to get rid of our guilt and give us a new heart. Because, see, the Bible says that all of us by nature have hearts that are hard and stuck in our independence. We are stuck wanting our own way. In Isaiah 40, the prophet says, comfort, comfort my people. And then he lays out how the time is coming, the time is approaching quickly, in which God is going to reverse that. He's going to end our long exile, forgive our sin, and give us new hearts. And this passage is popular during the season that's approaching us because it is a passage that is used by the New Testament to talk about the coming of Jesus. Now listen close. Because the Christian hope is not that we just need to be good enough to to go be with God. It's not it. I know that's what you may have been taught. It's not that you just need to be good enough in this world to go be with God. The Christian hope is that since we couldn't be good enough, God came to be with us. And that's what the season that's approaching is all about. In Jesus, God took on humanity. Jesus is both God and man and came to live that life for others that we can't. We can't, we're focused in on ourselves, we're bent in on ourselves. Jesus was not. Why? Fully God and fully man. And so he was turned outward. But then he came also to die for all of our oppression and our envy. You see, in the Old Testament, someone who brings comfort, a comforter, is someone who actually comes into another's pain. Who enters into it, draws near, and brings hope. And so Jesus died for our guilt, right? He bore the weight of our betrayal before God for us. But then he was raised from the dead, okay? Now, this is really important. Because it is pretty popular today to think that you can believe that Jesus is just really cool so long as we don't go talking about anything supernatural. Like, I mean, Jesus is all right with me. Do we have to start talking about, like, loaves and fishes and water walking and getting out of tombs? Like, come on. But listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like Becca read to us this morning, we are fools to believe anything he said. Fools. Because all what he said did is get him killed. (laughs) If he didn't rise, we we are fools for being in this place. But Christians believe that Jesus did rise from the dead to give hope. Not pie in the sky hope. Pie in the sky hope is... Maybe things will pan out one day. But literally, here and now, the down payment of a world made new. Because the New Testament consistently says that God is not done with the world. Right? It's very popular today spiritually to think that the world is broken. We just need to go be spiritual beings somewhere. That is not Christianity. God has not abandoned the world. In Jesus, he came, to begin, he came to redeem it. And he did so beginning with the place it broke. Us. 
The book of Revelation describes what it will be like in that world made new by saying, poignantly to our teacher this morning, that in that place there will be no more tears. He will wipe them away. In other words, the tears of the oppressed will finally be taken away. And the first installment of that world, it's not a system. It's not an ethic. It's a person. It's Jesus, risen from the dead. And so when we place our faith in Him, returning to God, listen to me, returning to God on His terms, not ours, like, yeah, God, I'd like things to be right, but can't we just, let's negotiate. No, 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 no. You don't negotiate with someone you've betrayed. Right? You cheat on your spouse. You're not in negotiations. Okay, how can I make this right? Yeah, that's not okay with me. How about we do, no, no, that's not the way it works. When you've betrayed a person, they then dictate terms. And especially when you are meant to be dependent on that person. It's his terms, not ours. And when we place our faith in him, in Christ, we are united to him. Now, what does that mean? It means our, his death for sin became our death for sin. Our guilt then is removed. It means his perfect life is credited to us. It becomes our perfect life. And so then we have a faithful record before God. And if we are placing our faith in Christ, friends, it is because God has made us new. That he has given us that new heart that he promised so that we don't have to live into that lie anymore. You and I need a rescuer. When you're stuck, bent in on yourself, you can't fix it because all you can think of is yourself. And so God came and he rescued us in Jesus. It's not about being good. Listen, if your hope is in being in good, it's going to fail you. It's going to fail you because, frankly, it's the wrong standard. Anything short, no. Anything independent of God is betraying Him. Whether that's being good independent of God or being bad independent of God. It's still betraying Him. We were made for dependence on Him. Okay? That is the Christian hope. But what does that mean? Because I... Let's, let's be honest, you could easily translate that into, all right, then I'm just going to, again, keep my head down and go be with God in heaven when, I'm, when this is all done. But that is the farthest thing from the Christian hope. Friends, the Christian hope is not that you don't have to go to hell. That's part of it. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's a pretty important part of it. But it's not, the whole, it's not the whole money, okay? The Christian hope is for a world made new. For a world made new beginning with us. And over and over again, the New Testament talks about the way in which we are to live now. Listen to me. The way we live now is an anticipation of that world that is coming. You're not following me. The, living in anticipation of something means living in light of that reality coming back. Think of it this way. Okay? We've been talking a lot about politics this morning. When a new president is elected... He's elected in November. He takes office in January, right? What do we call the, pre the sitting president from November to January? He's a lame duck. Why? Because we're already living in light of a new regime. If that language is offensive. Forgive me. I couldn't think of anything else on the fly. Like we, we, are, we are living in light of the new administration. There we go. Okay? So the point of that is the same here. We... Christ is risen from the dead. He is bringing a new world with a new way of being. And our call now is to live in light of the new administration, not the current one. Okay? Now, I know that sounds convoluted. Here's what I mean. 
We know because of Jesus' resurrection that God's promise to redeem the world has been fulfilled. And it will be completely fulfilled in the future. And in that world, there is no oppression. And so we are to live in anticipation of that world by seeking to see oppression cease. Whether whether that oppression is in our neighborhood, in our family, or across the world. In the world that Christ is bringing, power is to be used for the flourishing of others. And so right here and now, in anticipation of that, we use the power that we have, and all of us have it. Let's not pretend that we don't have any power. All of us have it, whether it's relational or systemic or vocational. We all have it. We use it now for the flourishing of others. We use it to see others flourish. In the world that Jesus is bringing, the oppressed will be comforted. And so we anticipate that that world, by entering into the pain of those who are oppressed, who, who are suffering, and we bring hope. Now, how do we do it? Because some of you right now are like, the hair on the back of your neck is like this. And you're like, that sounds like social gospel. I don't know. What, what is that? Here's the thing. Friends, listen. The Christian hope is not an individualistic heaven. That is not the Christian hope. The Bible refuses to fit into our reductionist frameworks. The Christian hope is a right relationship with God, neighbor, and creation. It is holistic. And so the question of living out the Christian hope cannot be labeled, cannot be uh, suddenly uh, derailed by giving a label of liberal or conservative. The question needs to be, is it orthodox and biblical? Not, is that liberal or conservative? Get rid of those labels right now. Is it orthodox and biblical? In other words, to live out the Christian hope will mean seeking to see people with full bellies and full souls. It's holistic. It will mean seeking to see orphans and foster children placed in homes and seeking to see disciples of Jesus multiply. We cannot reduce it to either or. Either evangelism or social good. No, 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 no. People know Jesus and they starve to death. They are not flourishing. People are well fed but don't know Jesus. They are not flourishing. We seek to see both. Can we control both? No, 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 no. No. I'm not painting a utopian vision. I'm telling you we are living in anticipation of a world made new. It will mean breaking generational cycles of poverty and breaking generational cycles of unbelief. Okay? Now let me conclude with this caution. Because like, some of y'all younger people in here are like, Yes! Storm the kingdom! And like, others of you are like, Yeah, I've been there, done that, done work. Right? Okay? And, and so, here's the thing. The Christian hope presses against both our pessimism and our optimism. Because when we grow too optimistic... Too idealistic and romantic that our utopia is just a step away. It reminds us that the problem is too deep to be reformed out. It must be recreated. It cannot be reformed. It must be recreated. And it must be recreated by the God who first made everything. And at the same time, when we grow pessimistic and think the world is too jacked up and all we can do is kind of keep our heads down and hope we don't get squished and go to heaven, it reminds us, friends... Listen to me, because uh, those of you who lean more conservative, this is where you're at. It reminds us Jesus is risen. He is alive. The operative principle in the world is no longer power, it is love. 
Love that rescues. Death has been defeated. The oppressed have been comforted. Love now rules. Love that rescues. Love that has rescued. And love that will rescue again. Would you pray with me? Father, in light of these, this tension that we all live in, of where to place our hope, some of us start really good. We, we place our hope and we think, my hope is in Jesus. And then we start working for Jesus. And then we end up placing our hope in the system that we're creating for Jesus. Oh, others of us, we, we're so focused on a system, we don't have time for Jesus. Lord, would you rescue us? For those of us uh, who, who struggle with ever seeing the reality that under the sun, there is really no basis for these things, would you open our eyes to them? And instead, raise our eyes to the risen Christ, who lived for us, who died for us, and was raised again for us so that we might trust in Him, trust in our Rescuer, and begin to see His world redeemed for His glory. That is what we ask for, nothing less than that. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.